How do you feel about ghost stories? And are they just that? Stories? Stories to make us look harder to make sure no one is lurking there in the shadows? Many have no sources or corroboration, just a spooky tale passed down and told over campfires over and over again. And then there are those stories that are true. True crimes that have been committed. So terrifying and so much scarier because they are true. And they did happen. Today, we have both for you. We're in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we're taking you on another ghostly tour. We will talk about the ghosts of several downtown hotels and take you for a walk through the cemetery to the stones of four children and their mother, who all died on the same day in 1937. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi friends and tapophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today we have more of our October spooktacular. My co-host today is Taylor. Hey Taylor. Hey. So in preparation for our fun and spooky October, we did a Flagstaff, Arizona walking ghost tour around the downtown area. Yeah, it was just interesting because we didn't even know some of these ghost stories living in our own town. Yeah, so today we are going to talk about a couple of these. I did know some of the stories, but we're only going to get to three of them today. And we'll have to talk about more spooky tales another day. <laughs> the first place we're going to take you to is the Weatherford Hotel. On January 1st, 1900, the $10,000 Hotel Weatherford opened its doors to the public. It was the biggest and best, according to the newspaper of the day, the Coconino Sun, who wrote, There is no finer hotel in the whole Southwest. And of Weatherford himself, they said, He is careful of the interests of his guests and every comfort obtainable is afforded them. It is one of the most iconic hotels in Flagstaff, located in the heart of downtown and just a block away from historic Route 66. You know the song that talks about you get your kicks on Route 66? <laughs> right through our town. Yep. This old hotel has welcomed everyone from presidents to gunslingers, including Theodore Roosevelt, Thomas Moran, William Randolph Hearst, Wyatt Earp, and Western author Zane Gray. In fact, Gray's novel, The Call of the Canyon, was written in an upstairs room, now part of what is called the Zane Gray Ballroom. 121 years later, the Weatherford Hotel continues to operate after some extensive restoration. Henry Taylor and Pamela Sam Green are now the proprietors of the Hotel Weatherford and consider themselves caretakers of the historic place. They have been preserving this historic landmark for 30 years and have restored it to a level much better than they found it. Along with its rich history, the Hotel Weatherford is also said to be called home to a couple of resident ghosts. In the Zane Gray Ballroom, complete with its stained glass windows and antique Brunswick bar from Tombstone, is the side of where at least is said to most often appear. Ooh. In this beautiful ballroom, the ghostly woman has often been spied floating across the room. On other occasions, she is said to dart from one side of the room to the other. Other phenomena in the ballroom include the light over the pool table that seemingly sways of its own accord, 
and the sounds of whispers and voices coming from an otherwise empty bar. Apparently, there are the ghosts of a long-ago bride and groom that also haunt the hotel. According to the legend, back in the 1930s, a couple on their honeymoon was murdered in room 54. Whoa, that's crazy. A couple theories, murder-suicide, were they killed by maybe a jealous ex-lover? Like, what's the story? No one seems to know. Crazy. And it seems like now you would have lots more details if there were weapons in the room or what happened, but we don't seem to have any of these facts. Interesting. But there are numerous reports of seeing the couple in or around the room. On at least one occasion, an employee who was staying in the hotel awoke in the middle of the night to find a bride and groom sitting on the foot of his bed. Uh, no. Whoa. Mm -mm. Don't like that. <laughs> You're like, so hey, what y'all doing sitting on How my are bed? You doing? And the bride and groom are like, what are you guys doing sitting on my bed? Is the reason why you're staring at me? Today, the room has been turned into a storage closet. But even that hasn't stopped the ghostly pair. As guests have often reported seeing the couple enter the closet that was once their room. Whoa. Staff has reported hearing their names being called out by a disembodied voice while on the fourth floor, as well as feeling an eerie presence. And some even say that they see the ghosts waltzing around the hotel, especially near room 54. I remember that on the ghost tour, too, the guide told us that they turned that room into a storage closet because there was so much activity there. Yes. Just because it was like too much for people to handle. So they were like, um, we're just gonna discontinue this room because it's a little. <laughs> too crazy exactly so there are several youtube videos talking about some of the haunted experiences so we'll provide a few links on the blog if you're interested you can go check those out so taylor i have a first-hand account that a friend told me about her stay there what that's crazy what is it i was talking to her about the weatherford hotel and she says that she had this experience there and so I had her write it up so that I could use it in the podcast. She said, prior to moving to Flagstaff, my husband and I would travel about once a month to visit and play in the snow. One May weekend, about five years ago, we stayed at the Weatherford and were given the honeymoon suite upon check-in. We thought we'd hit the jackpot. The room was so neat Huge clawfoot bathtub, large room with some really cool antiques. We went out that evening to dinner and to visit a few spots in downtown Flagstaff. Upon arriving back to the honeymoon suite, we prepared for bed and started to fall asleep when we smelled smoke. Hmm. In addition to the smell of cigarette smoke, the rocking chair in the room close to the bed began to rock back and forth. <laughs> We checked the window to see if anyone was smoking down below on the ground level outside. No. We checked the hallway to see if the smell was coming from there. No. And all the hallway lights were off. Yikes. We went back in the room, turned on the lights, and tried to get sleep. Not much was had. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> I am not sure how I would react to the rocking chair rocking by itself. Uh, yeah, don't like that. And she said that it wasn't just like a whiff of smoke. It smelled like someone was smoking in their room. Crazy. Maybe the person rocking in the rocking chair? Maybe. Now, my husband and I stayed at the Weatherford, and we had a great time. We found it <laughs> lovely, really nice room, no ghosts that we knew of. It was the weekend, and so they had a band playing downstairs, so it was rockin', but we were the only ones dancing in our room, so <laughs> I guess you never know. That you know of. That I know of. Mm -hmm. So, our next haunted hotel is called the Monta Vista. And if you ask anyone in town, they would probably tell you that it's very haunted. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. Even as I was growing up, I remember everyone talking about that. That's just something that you know when you live there. Yeah, I don't know anyone in town that has stayed at the Monta Vista because it's super scary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's for people that are tourists. <laughs> exactly. That either don't know or they do know and they want to get scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> so it opened on New Year's Day in 1927. And this historic hotel, which is now listed on the National Register of Historic Places, has been fully restored to its former glory and continues to serve the traveling public today. It has hosted numerous famous figures over the years, including Harry Truman. We've had lots of famous people stay in our town. Yes, we have. <laughs> this old hotel is one of the very few American hotels built entirely from public taxes. When in 1924, a man by the name of V.M. Slipher spearheaded a local fundraising campaign to build the hotel. Opening 24 years after the Weatherford in 1924, tourism by then was a burgeoning business in Flagstaff. And there wasn't enough lodging to keep all the visitors staying in town to spend their money. <laughs> Slipher's efforts resulted in a city-voted ordinance that established a municipal bond to build the hotel. After its opening, the hotel was popular not only among the tourists, but also a favorite of the locals who quickly coined the phrase, meet me at the Monty V. <laughs> <laughs> In its first year, the hotel hosted Mary Costigan's daily three-hour radio show from room 105. Costigan was the first American woman to be granted a radio broadcasting license. That's cool. And she was in Flagstaff. Then in the 1940s and 50s, Western movies became super popular, as we know. And being in the Southwest, more than 100 movies were filmed in nearby Sedona and Oak Creek Canyon. Which, if any of you have been in that area, totally makes sense. It's perfect for a Western film. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the old Westerns have Sedona, Red yeah, Rocks in the background. And then, of course, you see a lot in and around Arizona and even out on the Navajo Reservation by Monument Valley. So, during this time when they were filming the movies, the Hotel Monta Vista hosted famous guests such as Jane Russell, Gary Cooper, Spencer Tracy, John Wayne, and Bing Crosby. That's so cool. In one of the rooms of the hotel, a scene from Casablanca was filmed. I had no idea about that. I didn't either. In fact, it was John Wayne who reported seeing one of the hotel's first ghosts in the late 1950s. <laughs> in the 1970s, a wild event happened. Three men robbed a Flagstaff bank. And one of the men was shot during their escape. Trying to lie low and celebrating their successful robbery, the trio stopped in at the Monta Vista Lounge for a drink. However, the wounded man's gunshot injury was more serious than any of them anticipated, because before he could even finish his first drink, he keeled over and died right there in the lounge. <gasps> oh my word. <laughs> I guess he didn't even know that he was shot. Yeah, did he not know or did he just go, it's merely a flesh wound and... Oh, yeah, it's fine, I'm fine. Kept going, yeah. <laughs> Today, the staff and guests of the Monty V's Lounge wonder if this dead bandit is one of the many spirits that haunt the building. Why not? <laughs> Why not? One manager reported that he would hear an eerie voice that said, hello or good morning when he opened the bar each day <laughs> that was a little bit creepy <laughs> uh yeah to have just this voice out of nowhere that said good morning and you're like yeah thanks <laughs> others have told stories of feeling a ghostly presence while enjoying a drink in the cocktail lounge so one friend told me that she and her husband had such an uncomfortable feeling there that they just had to leave oh jeez. <laughs> Yeah, it just felt like just weird and like someone was watching them. It just was weird. So they were like, mm-mm, leaving. And though it's thought that it could be the bank robber that died there, the hotel has such a past of shootings, cowboys on horseback in the lobby, and drunken brawls that they can't really be sure if it's that one <laughs> bank robber or not. <laughs> I just know some of the other stories coming up. And I'm just like, yeah, that's a little creepy, but... Mm, yeah, I know. I'm not looking forward to one of the stories. 
That's coming up. <laughs> I'm like, you tell it. I can't. I can't yeah, sure. It. Make the one that gets scared the most tell everything. <laughs> See how it is. Now, this is a hotel I definitely would not want to stay at because the ghosts here are mm -hmm. creepier than the Weatherford. The Weatherford, you just maybe have like a married couple stand at the foot of your bed, maybe smell some cigarette smoke in a rocking chair. <laughs> And you see some figures, but... <laughs> Gliding across the road. Yeah. The Weatherford has high-class ghosts. The Monta Vista has the Meat Man. <laughs> you heard that right, folks. The Meat Man. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. The name doesn't do it justice. <laughs> it's so much worse than you think. <laughs> In room 220... All types of strange activity are reported. Evidently, in the early 1980s, this room was rented to an eccentric, long-term boarder who was known to bring his work home with him. <laughs> and since we called him the Meat Man, can you guess what his occupation might be? He was a butcher. He was a butcher. <laughs> and since he was bringing his work home with him, that apparently meant that he would bring raw meat back to his room and would hang it from the chandelier Ew. and all over his room. I can't. I just can't. I'm sorry. Ooh. Gross. <laughs> He's so yucky. Why you would think it was okay to bring meat back? I mean, it was a different time. It was the 80s. In the 1980s? I'm sorry. I lived in the 1980s. Guys did not bring <laughs> meat to their hotel. <laughs> And hang it from the chandelier. Mm -mm. <laughs> that is He crazy. brought his work home with him. <laughs> Sometime later, he died in the room he had been renting there. And he wasn't found for three days. <sighs> three days. <sighs> and he was only found because other guests at the hotel started complaining about a terrible stench coming from the area of his room. So when the hotel staff went to investigate, they found him dead with a bunch of rotting meat. Uh. It seems that no one had missed him. I don't know what it is about this story, but it just gives me just the yucky shivers just don't yeah. quit. Well, and it gets worse is the thing because it's not just him curing meat in his room. Now we're getting to the haunting part Oof. of it. It's said that in the days afterward, like only a couple days after they had found the meat man, a maintenance worker was there and he was fixing up the room, making it nice for other tenants. Of course, because there was a bunch of rotting meat and a dead man in there. Oh yeah, just stop there. Yeah. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so he left to go grab a fixture that he needed. So he turned off the lights and he locked the door. And when he returned from his very short trip that took maybe a couple minutes, the room was destroyed. The linens were ripped off the bed and torn. The TV was on full blast and all the lights were on. Creepy, right? Oh, it's so creepy. People say he is still around room 220. And guests can feel a chill in the air, and they sometimes complain of a putrid smell of rotting meat. <laughs> TV seems to still have a mind of its own, turning on by itself and on full blast. That seems to be his favorite pastime. Also, they discourage single young women from renting the room, because whenever single women rent the room, they seem to have the most disturbing things happen to them. <laughs> This is the part that is the cringiest, so... We can't handle. <laughs> be prepared, because it's a lot. So some of these single women that have stayed in this room have recounted that during the night, they awoke to hearing whispering in their ear, cold male hands on them while they slept. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And some even said that there was something wet dripping on them from the chandelier. And what could that be uh -uh. from oh. the meat? There's also reports of some people waking up with their feet wet 
under their covers. That is so weird. I don't even know what that is all about. Yeah. Like, oh, just thinking of feeling ooh. like whispering in your ear or cold male cold hands. Male hands touching you. I just, I, I can't with this story. Like, okay, I I'm know. done. The butcher thing <laughs> in and of itself, like with the cured meat and stuff, is gross. But then you add on yeah, to the, the putrid f- smells. Yeah, mm. you add on to the fact that he's like a, a pervert ghost <laughs> makes it like mm. oh <laughs> a million times worse. <laughs> you know what I oh, mean? Yuck. Like I can handle maybe mm-hmm. some ghosts if they're chill, but like a pervert ghost is like the worst out of everything. Yeah, it literally makes me so grossed out i just get the worst yucky shiver like literally the whole time you've been telling the story like there is this <laughs> shiver just like going up and down my spine and i'm the oh. whole time we were taking the tour and they he was telling us the story of the meat man i like held on to marcus for dear life i was like no there is no <laughs> way in heck even if someone was like hey i'll give you a million dollars if you stay in this room by yourself i'd be like no Mm-mm. no no not happening no thanks i don't want wet feet and whispering in my ear with (laughs) male hands all over me no thank you no thank you not the meat man man. Mm -mm. i would rather not Mm -mm. (laughs) so this is not the only ghostly encounter at the monta vista so far we've touched on two but there is some more that's actually as we said quite haunted so another encounter includes a small boy wandering the halls who seems to be talking to his mother now small boy Talking to his mom? Not too do. bad. No yucky shivers. Mm-mm. Doesn't scare Not me at too all. Bad. Others say that an old woman that was a long-term renter still occupies room 305. And the rocking chair by the window she used to people watch downtown still mysteriously rocks when no one is on it. Just rocks by itself. The Weatherford and the Bonavista have... Have that in common. Yeah. <laughs> Further, in this same room, if guests or the cleaning staff moves the chair... The next day, it will always reappear next to the window. (laughs) That is her spot, and no one can move her chair from her spot. Also, if other pieces of furniture are moved, sometimes she'll rearrange the furniture in the room. Hey, she's particular. She likes her things where she loves them. Exactly. Don't mess with her stuff. She's also been known to move guest suitcases out into the hall. She's like, excuse me, this is my room. Yeah, these are not mine. You are not staying here. <laughs> Why is your stuff here? here? <laughs> She's a very proper ghost. <laughs> so people staying in that room will get up in the morning and they can't find their suitcases. Or need to find them out in the hallway. <laughs> I can't imagine. I really can't. She's also been seen sitting in the rocking chair at the window. Our tour guide said that he actually saw her sitting in the window one night as he was giving a tour. And it scared him to death. Yeah. (laughs) And not to scare his tour guests, he didn't point her out. But he saw her, and then when he turned back, the next moment she was gone. Which is so crazy, but cool. It is funny. I mean, you are the guide telling everyone about the ghosts. And you wouldn't really expect to see Mm -hmm. one that you're talking about. And then you just kind of look up and you're like, Holy crap. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there she is. It would be a little fun to rent that room and then just dress up like an old lady and sit and rock. Just to scare the crap out of people. Window. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Honestly, on our way to our car from the tour, my brother Dallin and I, we were walking and we passed by the Hotel Monte Vista because we had parked downtown and we both looked up at one of the balconies and there was a woman there just staring at us. It was a real person, but (laughs) (laughs) two people that had just been on a ghost tour and were thoroughly freaked out by the Hotel Monte Vista saw this woman and screamed. We both screamed at the same time. We were like, oh my gosh, what is that? And then we looked back and we're like, oh, that's just a woman. (laughs) That's a normal lady. All types of other strange phenomenon are reported at the hotel by spirits who make noise. So there's been reports of a baby crying down in the basement. The staff and maintenance workers are the ones who mainly hear the baby cry, and they have no idea who the baby would be or the origins, and they always seem to go down there and look Hmm. for them, and they have never been able to find the baby. 
Both employees and guests have heard band music coming from the second floor lobby when there's no band playing. Reportedly, the staff has become so accustomed to the odd occurrences that it has become a joke to them. <laughs> in room 210, many guests have been awakened in the night by a phantom bellboy who knocks on the door with a statement, room service. However, when the guests open the door, they see nothing but an empty hallway. Not even a glimpse of someone escaping down the corridor. <laughs> so it's kind of like his version of Ding Dong Ditching yeah. or whatever. He's a prank. <laughs> just, <laughs> room service. He probably just still thinks he's doing his job. There you go. He just thinks they need something. And then when they open the door, he's like, oh, they can't see me. Weird. So not many people have seen him, but a few housekeepers there have seen a bellboy wearing the iconic red jacket walking down the hall. So guests usually don't see him, but housekeepers have seen him roaming the hallways. Others have reported seeing the image of a woman who wanders the halls outside this room. Supposedly, the hotel avoids putting guests with pets in this room because dogs go crazy with fear and tear up the room for babies. And isn't it funny that he only goes to room 210? Yes. You know, Bellboy would have been going, taking room service all over. So I wonder what it is about this yeah, room. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Even the famous actor, John Wayne, had this happen to him when he stayed in this room. The door was knocked on, he heard room service, and when he went and opened the door, no one was there. Mr. Wayne said that the ghost seemed friendly and he did not feel threatened at its presence. Well, that's because he's yeah. a awesome, tough cowboy. <laughs> Maybe he should stay in the meat man room and see what happens then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring that up again. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All we're going to have to do to completely gross each other out for the rest of our lives is mention the meat man. In the Gary Cooper room in this same hotel, many guests have reported being unnerved by the sure feeling that someone was watching them. Reportedly, two prostitutes were murdered in this room when they were thrown uh. out the window. Oh, gosh. Not just murdered. They were thrown out the window. That is That's such an awful. awful way to die. These two painted ladies have also been reportedly sighted in the pool hall and the lounge. So single men are asked not to stay in this room by themselves. Kind of like the meat man <laughs> and like the, the young women. Yeah. They have more activity Here. happening with single mm -hmm. men. That stay there. Well, I wonder why. You know it was men that threw them out the window. Uh, yeah. So men that have stayed in that room have reported waking in the night with a feeling of hands over their mouths or throats and feeling like they can't breathe. Oh, that's creepy. Violent ghosts. Yeah. They obviously Ugh. were violently murdered, so it makes sense that they... They're angry. They were very angry. The Hotel Monta Vista is the longest publicly held commercial hotel in the history of America, finally selling to a private individual in the early 1960s. Located at 100 North San Francisco Street, the old hotel with its tales of scandal and ghost stories continued to entertain. That's for sure. Yeah, it was. There's a lot of different sightings and different kinds of stories there from a lot of different eras. Yeah. Definitely. Now we're going to talk about the local cemetery. We're going to talk about Flagstaff Citizens Cemetery. It's a lovely cemetery with ponderosa pines, grass, and beautiful views. They're very early graves from the town's history, but this wasn't the town's first cemetery. That cemetery was called Greenwoods, huh. and it was the final resting place of many outlaws and Old West gunslingers of the late 1800s. And the story goes that the town's hanging tree was nearby. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> it was decided in 1891 to move all the bodies from Greenwood to a new cemetery, which is Flagstaff Citizens. And it always seems strange when I hear of a city moving a cemetery. <laughs> yeah. But even stranger when not all the bodies were actually moved. What? So when the man responsible for exhuming the bodies and moving them over to the other cemetery brought the bill to the city, it was only for 
40 out of the 64 bodies that they knew to be buried there. Okay. <laughs> I don't know exactly what was said or what happened after that, but I guess they paid him and then they just didn't worry about the remains of at least 24 people. Okay. Even more settling, the cemetery was later made to a park. Oh, nice. Thorpe Park. Thorpe Park? <laughs> no, I'm never going there again. Never going there again. And the graves were over where the tennis courts no, are now. Uh, I had no idea. So they literally paved over and made tennis courts over where the cemetery is. It has a children's playground, big area for barbecues and parties. And it's like, this used to be the cemetery. That's weird. It's so like crazy. I've been there so many times. We have times. been there so many times. Like, we took you kids there yeah. all the time. And, I mean, we go to cemeteries all the time, too. But it's really weird when you have no idea that you're going to a cemetery and you think it's just a lovely yeah. park. So I wonder if anyone playing tennis ever gets a strange feeling or I don't sighing. know. I have some friends that played tennis in high school and they would always practice at Thorpe Park. Maybe I should ask them mm -hmm. if they'd have any experiences. I know, right? That was a crazy story that I did not know. Yeah. So the new Citizens Cemetery, I mean, it's not new now. <laughs> it was like the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. But the cemetery that we have now, Citizens Cemetery, it covers 40 acres and has lots of trees and grass. It's a really peaceful place. The Northern Arizona University, their North Campus, is literally across the street. Mm -hmm. I know that some of the college kids are not so happy that there is a cemetery across the street. Well, there, nestled among the pines of Flagstaff citizens, are the graves of four children and their mother, which in itself is not totally unusual. But what is unusual is that they all have the same death date, July 22nd, 1937. Our next story is a true crime story that happened here in Flagstaff in 1937. It is one of the most shocking stories. I've been to the cemetery many times and haven't ever seen the graves until I read a booklet entitled who Lies Beneath. Perfect title for us. <laughs> Put out by the Arizona Historical Society, our friend Scott is one of the owners of the local mortuary, and knowing that I like to visit cemeteries and do this podcast, he shared this booklet with me. And in it, I read this family's story and was so shocked and saddened by it. It was quite short and to the point, and I wondered, what happened? I started to try and find more sources. I wanted to know more. Then I heard their story again when my family did the Freaky Foot Tour. And then, just as I was writing this episode, a new book by Susan Johnson about this tragedy was released that very week. The story just kept coming back to me over and over this year. As I have dug into the story, I found a darkness, a tragedy that is very disturbing and left me stunned. From the outside, JD and Marie Walkup seemed like any other couple in Flagstaff. They had a lovely home in the nice downtown area a cute white picket fence around their yard, and four darling little children. Daniel, who was about 10 years old, Rosemarie was almost eight, John, four and a half, and baby Elizabeth, that they nicknamed Phoebe, would be 20 months old in just a few days. The father, J.D. Walkup, chairman of the Coconino County Supervisors and active member of the Chamber of Commerce, was a busy man. He had several jobs, and he seemed to be everywhere. His name was in the newspaper a lot in those days. Planning this, then he was on another committee, or being chairman of that. He was a man about town with important jobs serving the community. But in 1937, 
Marie wasn't ever mentioned in the papers, which may not seem like a big point. I mean, my name is never in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the 1930s, every meeting, church gathering, bridge game, or garden party was noticed in the papers. And every name was noted, along with whose home it was held in and what food was served, and even how the event was decorated. You literally couldn't even go out of town for the weekend without it being noticed and written about in the paper. So it was basically like what we have with social media today. Yeah, exactly. So why was she never mentioned? Was she shy? Was she antisocial and popular? Or, I mean, she was a mom of four. Was she just busy all mm-hmm. the time? Like, what was going on that made her not the center of attention, I guess? We don't really know what her personality was like, but having had a big family myself, I do know that she was busy at home. Caring for babies and little children is no job for wimps. <laughs> yeah, true. And it sounds like her husband was so busy with work, it feels like she spent many hours alone with the children. On that fateful Thursday in July, J.D. kissed his wife and children goodbye and headed to Phoenix for another of his many meetings. J.D. also gave rides to Phoenix that day to several college girls who were headed down for a regional softball tournament. This probably would have been a normal thing to carpool, give rides, you know, in those days as there was mm-hmm. no I-17 in 1937. The trip to Phoenix would have taken five to six hours one way in those days. Insane. Three times the time it takes now. Yeah. I guess you saved gas and got rides where you could. Yeah. It seemed like a normal day, and the walk-up children were even seen playing outside until late afternoon in their yard. Marie Walkup had called the family physician the day before, talking to him again about a chronic stomach ailment and this time expressed worry that the children may have contracted it. Dr. Fronsky later said Marie sounded anxious and overwrought, and he tried to reassure her during the call. Later Thursday night, at around 10.20, Marie again called the doctor's house. But this time, Dr. Fronsky was not home, but he'd left his son Robert to take any messages from his patients. Robert grabbed a pencil and wrote down Marie Walkup's message. Tell him to come by early tomorrow morning, and then be sure to tell him not tonight, but tomorrow. Hmm. Later that evening, four young people were taking a midnight walk around what was the golf club at the time. Ed Conrad was 29 and the oldest of the group, and he had trespassed through the golf course lots of times before and had never seen anyone else around. But as the group rounded the fourth hole, they stopped, because silhouetted in the light of the full moon, they could see the outline of a car parked on the access road. They stood still and listened for a motor. There was no motor running. Hmm. The group slowly approached the vehicle and saw that the driver's side door was open, but no one was in the car. One of the young women went around the back of the car to look and let out a scream when she saw a foot lying by the tire. Ed quickly joined her and was horrified to see the body of a woman covered in blood and wearing her nightgown. She had a bullet wound that tore a hole in her chest. And next to her was an old rifle, and her right foot was bare with a slipper nearby. Terrified, the two couples rushed to their vehicle. Ed Conrad dropped off the others before alerting the sheriff. He returned with two deputies to the scene of the tragedy. Both of the deputies, deputies Francis and Willis, recognized the car right away as being the walk-up's car. It was still a small mountain town of around 5,000 back in those days. And the officer knew that J.D. was in Phoenix on a business trip. As they got out to investigate, they found the woman just as Conrad had reported. And there was no doubt in either deputy's mind that the woman was indeed Marie Walkup. Willis stayed with Conrad at the scene while Francis headed back into town. A coroner's jury would have to be convened as soon as possible. After he arrived at the office, Deputy Francis 
notified the county coroner as well as the county health official. The three men met at the sheriff's office and prepared to drive the four miles north to the country club. But first, they had a stop to make. If Marie was lying dead outside the family car up at the golf course, who was with the four walk-up children? When the officers arrived at the home, they found the front door unlocked with a note tacked to the door. Mm. Dr. Fronsky, it read on the front. Inside, it read, please look in on the children. Yikes. One of the officers then goes to get Dr. Fronsky. And as they looked down at the porch, next to the door was the milk bottle. And in it, the note, no milk today. The officers entered the house and found it in perfect order. Everything in place. Everything was quiet. They entered a downstairs bedroom and saw a toddler in a crib with a teddy bear and blanket tucked under her chin, lying still. An older boy also looked peaceful in his small bed with his clean sheets tucked up around him. At first glance, everything looked calm and okay, but the boy seemed unnaturally still, and there were no sounds of breathing from either child. Oh, no. They pulled the sheet down from the child and noticed dark, ugly bruising around his neck and no signs of breathing or life. Mm -hmm. They turned and checked the toddler and see the same terrible bruising around her tiny neck. These two children, Daniel and baby Phoebe, are dead and they have been strangled. Awful. The officers walk out onto the porch and wait for Dr. Fronsky. At approximately 1.30 a.m., he gets there, and they have a discussion before entering the walk-up home. And then the doctor and one of the officers enters. After a few minutes downstairs, the doctor, who was familiar with the home, made his way to the upstairs bedroom of the other two children. Dr. Fronsky never spoke publicly about what he was feeling that night, but we can only imagine the intense feeling of dread and fear at what he would probably find. And when he entered that room, there were two more small beds with two more tiny children. Mm. Rosemary, who was eight, and John, four and a half. They looked to be asleep from a distance, but again, it was too quiet too still. Both had clean sheets pulled up to their chins, and with closer inspection, both had the same awful welt and bruising around their little throats. Hmm. There was another note found addressed to JD. Found at the scene, the children's bodies were then taken to the morgue where they were able to look at them closer, and it was then discovered that small puncture wounds had been made into the children's Hearts oh. with a small instrument like an ice pick. Oh. They weren't noticed at the scene because everything was clean. There was no blood or any sign of it on the bedding or on the children or their pajamas. Max Miller, who was the justice of the peace who assembled the coroner's jury, was quoted in the paper as saying that Rosemarie had been stabbed only once and that the weapon did not penetrate deeply. Rather, he believed it had hit the young girl's rib and was deflected off of it, that she had then awakened and began to resist her mother's attack. Oh. The other three children, Miller said, were stabbed exactly twice, directly over the heart. The Coconino Sun also reported in their article the next day, there were bruise marks on the throats of three, and on the throat of one, a slight laceration as though from a fingernail. The coroner's jury verdict at 4.30 a.m. that morning was that the children died from stab wounds and strangulation inflicted by their mother, who they decided had committed suicide shortly before midnight. This same man, Miller, told the Arizona Republic that Marie Walkup had committed the murders with such dispatch that nothing was out of place. The children, night clothes, and bedding were in order. Wow. So what has been surmised about the murder came mostly from Max Miller and what he told the press. And that is that after Marie had tucked her four children into bed, 
She walked into the kitchen, opened the drawer, and pulled out an ice pick. Without a sound, she crossed the brown-tiled foyer and slipped into the downstairs bedroom where two of her children slept. She stabbed each child twice in the chest. Danny, 10, and Elizabeth, little Phoebe, almost two. Then Marie climbed the stairs and used the ice pick on John as he too lay sleeping peacefully. Then she strangled each child with a man's handkerchief that had been twisted and knotted on two ends. And to ensure that they were dead, she had first plugged their nostrils with cotton. They had all died without a struggle, except for little Rosemarie, whose body indicated she had awakened and resisted her mother. She was the one who had only had the glancing blow from the ice pick. Mm -hmm. So did she wake at her mother's approach and try to fight off the attack? How terrifying. Yeah, someone that's supposed to be your caretaker and loving and... Your mom. Your mom is all of a sudden stabbing you and trying to kill you. That's sad and terrifying. Be scary as a kid. It looked as if Rose was killed by the strangulation only. So maybe Marie, when she couldn't do it while she was just lying sleeping, she had to just go to, or she had to, you know what I mean? She went to just the strangulation. When her plan didn't work, she changed her plan. Marie had coldly murdered her four children. She made sure that her death dealing was effective. And I just can't imagine the next part where Marie walks to the linen closet and removes fresh bed sheets. She also grabs some tiny clean pajamas mm-hmm. and she washes the blood off of her lifeless children. And we don't know in the bathtub or just there in their beds, mm-hmm. but then she dresses them in clean pajamas, puts new clean sheets on their beds and tucks them back into bed. Why? And she tucks a teddy bear under baby Elizabeth's chin to keep her jaw from dropping open. Oh, how thoughtful. She then folds the bloody sheets, towels, and children's bloody pajamas, along with the murder weapon itself, the ice pick. She folds them into a brown woolen blanket and puts it in the fireplace behind the grate. And then... She must have looked around and checked that everything in the house was left in proper order. She wrote her notes to the milkman, Dr. Fronsky, her husband, J.D., and then one to her mother and sister. Leaving the family home, she drove three miles out of town to the secluded golf course, parking just off the dirt road. She had taken J.D.'s army rifle off the front seat and climbed out of the car. She sat down on the ground near the back tires and removed her right slipper. She carefully positioned the rifle. Then Marie used her big toe to pull the trigger and ended her own life. Within a few days, the walk-up murders had been reported in most major newspapers in the U.S. and several overseas. Wow, that story is a lot. I just can't imagine. I know. That poor husband and father, I mean... How did he even find out? Did someone call him? Did he find out from the newspapers? I hope someone called him. J.D. was awakened in the early morning in his hotel room in Phoenix by persistent knocking on the door. The night clerk told him that he needed to return home to Flagstaff immediately. So J.D. then calls the deputy sheriff, Charlie Marshall, to ask what had happened. Marshall finally tells him that his wife was dead, but nothing was said about the children. Oh, gosh. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I know. This man know. had to drive yeah. five to six hours all the way back to Flagstaff, knowing that his mm-hmm. wife was dead, but hoping that his children were okay, not knowing that his children had also been killed. That's just... Uh. I can't. I can't even fathom what that would have been like. The Coconino Sun reported that as J.D. Walkup returned to Flagstaff, he drove straight to the sheriff's office where he learned that his wife had taken her own life. So not only was she gone, but she 
had killed herself. Mm. He then asked where his children were. And then the full extent of his loss was revealed to him as gently as possible. The letter that was addressed to J.D. left by Marie was also printed in The Sun and in part read, quote, Because of my lack of discipline, the children are happier to go this way. Only grief would come to them. You were strong in faith, never doubting. Mercy to my people. I love you and I have failed. Let Lala help you and let the service be private. She will find what things we need, unquote. Uh, so many questions after that letter. Who is Lala? (laughs) So Lala was a nickname for her best friend, Alice Weston. Huh. She had been Marie's bridesmaid at her wedding to JD, so they had been friends for years. I also read that she would come over frequently and help Marie with the children. Oh. So sound like she was a close friend and she wanted her to help get clothing and such together for the funeral. Interesting. So from her suicide note, it looks like she was depressed, right? And I mean, it just sounds like she's full of despair and she didn't feel like she was doing a good job as a mother, which is so sad. It is so sad. In her obituary, she was described as being attractive, fun-loving, and had many friends both before and since her marriage. And yet again, we don't really see her being involved in the community. Even the children, when you go back and look at all of the newspaper articles back in the day and all the society and the personals, there was... Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, birthday parties. There was all of those same things that happened with children. And the children were also not mentioned or involved. Huh. So it's kind of strange. It's like she was ostracized almost. Yeah. Was she ostracized in some way from the community? Or did she remove herself from society? I mean, she kept going to Dr. Fronsky with the stomach issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that an actual, like, physical ailment that was a lot to handle? Right. Or was it anxiety? I know when I have anxiety, my stomach hurts at times. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean... Right. Or was it just a way that she could talk to a doctor and, like, have that excuse to not be alone? I don't know. Or get help, even. Yeah, Dr. Fronsky stated that she was despondent with worry. So the question is, was it her way of asking for help? Maybe. We know that she was also worried her children had whatever stomach ailment she was suffering with. Was she just projecting it on the children? Or were they actually talking about pain or crying? Yeah. But she doesn't mention it in the note, to our knowledge. Also, I read a statement by Dr. Fronsky that said when she called the day before, she sounded nervous and that she imagined she had an intestinal ailment. Wow. I can't believe he said imagined. That happens to a lot of people, unfortunately, when it comes to those kinds of illnesses. Even people that have like chronic pain, they're told it's like all in their head. But Mm -hmm. how would he know that she was imagining it? How would he know? He doesn't know her body. He's not physically in her body. I mean, did that lead to her not being able to tell him about how she had depression and anxiety and she was struggling with all these things? I mean, who wants to open up to a doctor that says you're imagining your symptoms? I wouldn't. (laughs) And was she feeling things that in 1937 language... She just couldn't put into words. They didn't talk about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders, or OCD in those days. They would say women were in hysterics or that their blood pressure was high or something like that. They just didn't understand it yet. I mean, we barely understand it now. Did she just feel wrong, out of sync, you know, but had no idea what to do or how to even ask for help. I'm just thinking about times, I mean, I have felt 
really terrible after having some babies and I've had a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, postpartum anxiety. And even in the 2000s, there were doctors yeah. that had no idea what was wrong with me. Yeah. They were just like, I don't know what's wrong with you. And it was terrifying to have a doctor tell you like, well, go get counseling yeah. or something. I don't know why you're nervous. I don't know why you feel anxiety. And of course, I didn't. Nothing was wrong in my life. Everything was great. Why did my yeah. body feel so terrible? And so I just can't help but my heart kind of like you can't help but kind of hate this person and love her yeah. at the same time and feel terrible for what she must have been feeling and hope that it is getting better now and the things yeah even just in the past couple years it's changed more and more of just accepting that mental health is an issue like just people just have a hard time believing that it's real because it's something you can't see you can't physically. see it it's not like we have like blemishes all over our bodies or something because of this or you can hear us coughing or we look ill it's right. yeah with a broken leg you can look at the leg mm -hmm. and know that it is broken and you can fix it but with a broken mind or even now they know that there's lots of health problems that also carry with it anxiety or depression that is brought on by these other things that are happening in your body so in her note, you know, it said, because of my lack of discipline. I mean, do you think that the kids were kind right. of out of control or that she felt that way at least? Did she think that mm -hmm. she wasn't measuring up as a wife and a mother? And what would lead a woman to believe that her children would be happier dead than alive? I don't understand yeah, I, I don't really either. And I know that sometimes people who are depressed can feel that others would be happier if they weren't alive or that death would relieve their suffering or they would be like less of a burden or mm -hmm. any of that. But mm -hmm. what causes her a mother to believe that her children would be happier without her, but by taking their own, their lives? Because usually when you think like, oh, my children will be happier this way. The mother would take their own life, but not yeah. their kids I and themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's very, it's an interesting conundrum. And all of these, of course, I mean, are, are supposings and musings. Like, we don't know. There was just those few, those few little clues. We don't have any idea. There's no way that we can reach in her mind and understand exactly what she was thinking or feeling. or Exactly. In Keith Robinson's paper, No Milk Today, in which he recounts his findings on the murders, he wrote, Neighbors had long whispered about Marie being a little off hmm. and that she could be little much. And in Susan Johnson's book, Flagstaff's Walk-Up Family Murders, she interviewed an expert that wonders if Marie had borderline personality disorder. It's characterized by insecurity, impulsiveness, emotional instability, and yeah. difficulty maintaining relationships. Many who suffer from this disease are terrified of being abandoned and may not do well if left alone. Maybe she felt abandoned by her husband and all of his trips and jobs. I mean, he just that night had left to go down to Phoenix with some mm -hmm. young softball players as well. This Dr. Caspian speculates, it seems to me in Marie's case that there was a precipitation event. Yeah. Something snapped. What she did was very angry, took energy, mm -hmm. and was very public. After killing her children, she drove out to the golf course, a place that speaks of money, deal-making, and hobnobbing, a place her husband presumably was familiar with. But, you know, she did that in a public place. She drove out there in her nightgown to make her mark. So, I don't know. It just, it's not a whodunit. It's not a cold case. I mean, they know who mm -hmm. did it. 
and they know pretty much what happened. Yeah. And even mostly the order of it happened. But we don't know why, and we don't know what was going on in their life that made her snap. And one of the things that stand out to me is that after the memorials and burials, Marie and her children were never mentioned in the Hmm. Coconino Sun newspaper again. The town dealt with the pain of the event and in typical old-timey style, swept it under the proverbial rug. And it was hardly mentioned other than in hushed tones ever Interesting. Yeah, that's why I didn't even know about any of this. A lot of us that have lived in Flagstaff for all or most of our lives didn't know about this story like what this that was me when i read it first in that booklet and i thought how is it that i've never even heard of this well it was never talked about it again because you know it was about suicide it was about death they didn't want to talk about those things. and it was about a woman killing her children and then taking her own life like that just yeah is so opposite from that time back then of what you want yeah. to think about women the doing. worst of the worst yeah all five of the walk-ups are buried in a double plot in citizen's cemetery with the children side by side in one plot and directly east of their mother in the adjoining one Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about the mother being buried with her kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, part of me is like, yeah. oh, that poor mom like went through so much that she felt yeah. like she had no way out. But the other part of me is like, yeah, but she murdered her children and we're going to bury her next to them. But I don't know. At some point, she did make the choice and she cold-bloodedly and viciously stabbed and choked her children. Exactly. So now there are actually even a few ghostly sightings related to this story oh many people have seen the spirit of a small girl kicking a ball about in the front yard of the Hmm. old house it's still there to this day a resident of the home whose own daughter spent her early years in the house said she would ask her dad about those kids who she'd find standing around her bed looking down at her (laughs) some mornings oh gosh oh oh boy Another haunting that Susan Johnson thinks may be related to the walk-up murders is the sighting of a woman on the side of a road wearing evening attire and looking for a ride. Much like Resurrection Mary, the young woman appears in distress and is often cold, leaving the motorist to offer her a coat or a blanket. At some point in the ride, as the driver is taking her to her destination, he looks over and finds that she has vanished. Then later, the coat or blanket is found draped over the gates of Uh, the cemetery. uh, No way. I just don't even know if I believe that, but that's the story. I believe it. Give me yucky shivers. (laughs) Mm -mm. Oh, that is creepy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Note to self, don't pick up random women off of the side of the road that look creepy. End of story. (laughs) Right? And some of the reports say that where the woman is foreseen and picked up are actually very close to the old walk-up Interesting. No one will really know what exactly happened. That is the story of the walk-up murders in Flagstaff. Wow. So crazy. Yeah. And I will post the pictures of their little grave and some other great headstones in the cemetery here it has mystery to it and it just is so very yeah sad. it is it is sad and there's it's a part of history unfortunately and luckily for us we live in a day and age where mental health is more taken care of than it was back then back then if you're like i'm depressed they would be like either throw you in a asylum or they would tell you that you, you're yes, you're hysterical, that you need to have sex. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of doctors would tell women that they would have to do. So, grateful to live in a time now where we have things like actual therapists and psychiatrists and medicine to help us get through it. And so, if you or someone that you know or love tries to talk to you about things that are hard and the things that scare them or the feelings they have take them serious listen to them and do what you can to help and to get them help they're not trying to do it to get attention 
if they reach out to you, it's it's a really hard thing to do is to talk to somebody about your mental health. And if if somebody is like, hey, I'm having these intrusive thoughts, they most likely have not told anyone else. So take it seriously. You know, do what you can for them. Get them help because they'll need it. Well, kind of ends with a little bit of a downer yeah. here, but... At least we'll always have the meat man. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you just had to bring the meat man back up, didn't you? <laughs> oh, I still have nightmares about that man to this day. <laughs> Between the scary Lollery mansion, the creepy kid at the Andrew Jackson Hotel, and the lady at the Titanic Museum and the Meat Man, I am now scarred for life. So thank you we for are that, Mom. Scared to death. <laughs> You're very welcome, all. <laughs> welcome to October Spooktacular. Yeah. <laughs> Dancing honeymooners, bank robbers, ladies of the night thrown out a hotel window, and the whispers of the Meat Man. Did these phenomenons really happen? And why did Marie walk up murder her little children that night? What made her snap? I'm afraid we can only dig so far. It happened so long ago, and the question still lingers. What lies beneath? This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.